0: This is the Rits and Cures podcast.
1: Tonight, we're going to be joined by a special guest in Dr. Anthea Rhodes. She's the director of the Australian Child Health Poll. It's a novel approach to healthcare, and rather than health policy being directed solely by expert opinion and politics, the health poll aims to include, you know, the voices of us, the people. Who would have thought? And every three months, the public are polled about specific health questions and the information used. is is used to form healthcare initiatives. And the latest poll, interestingly, looked at the attitudes towards vaccination. She'll be along to explain why we need the poll and indeed how it works. And in Soapbox, we're looking at cyber violence, bullying and trolling. And ABC television has a documentary airing soon called Cyber Hate. Now, it's looking at the experiences of model-turned-author Tara Moss and tonight we thought we'd look at the legal options available to somebody who is the victim of cyber hate and also the effect on health and well-being. Should we tolerate it? Should we ignore it? How should we respond? How should we report it? I'm pleased to say that joining me as per usual, are Melbourne lawyer Katie Miller. Hi, Katie. Nice to see you. Lovely to see you, Lindy. And Associate Professor Steve Ellen from the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne. Hi, Steve. G'day. This is such a clever way of bringing both of your worlds together, isn't it? Into, well, I'm not saying it's not an important subject. I think it's incredibly important that we are talking about it. But there is both a medical and legal perspective on but the whole know, idea it's of cyberbullying. It's a, it's a beautiful unity. But, is. You, know,
0: you know, it's funny you should say that, though, because in a sense, you know, when, when this show – when, you know, you invited Bill and I onto this show originally five years ago. You know, it seemed we initially thought we were going to be talking about separate things all the time, but nearly every topic has an an angle where you can look at it from a health perspective or a legal perspective. But this one is,
1: sometimes though, it's, it's, let's say, it's it's a long bow, (laughs) but in this instance, that, that is not the case. It actually makes a hell of a lot of sense. So have you seen this documentary at all, Katie? Have you seen it? No, I
2: think the first episode is tomorrow, um, but I've been reading about it. um, And I think that it was funny, actually, I I saw this article um, just come up in my Twitter feed about the rates of online abuse. uh, And it was a study that... I thought it had been done recently, but it turns out it was done last year, um, which showed that one in two women online have experienced um, treatment that would be considered, you know, abuse, harassment, threats. Um, And when you look at women under the age of 30, that goes up to 70%. So, you know, some really sort of startling statistics. Um, I think the reason why these articles, um, even though the study was done last year, the reason why these articles are popping up again is because... The ABC's got this documentary uh, and I think the first episode is going to be looking at Tara Moss who, um, you know, in addition to having a modelling career, has become a very um, prominent human rights advocate uh, and consequently is receiving, you know, a lot of treatment online uh, that I think by any ordinary definition would satisfy the the Mm -hmm. definition of abuse.
1: Mm -hmm. And from a perspective of of the effect on her mental health i'm assuming this is going to come up in the conversation that she has but that because there's two sides to this obviously it, there is well, what can she do about it what did she do about it what was available to her from a legal perspective but that's almost um the catalyst for that is almost the effect that it's having on her mental health and that's the reason that she she would she would make some kind of legislative move. What what can it do to you?
0: Well, you know, I can summarise this one in seconds because it's been researched so much now over the last 10, 20 years. And it's pretty straightforward. A whole lot of psych disorders, in particular depression and anxiety, and people who have been bullied and harassed online, probably have an increased suicide rate. That's really hard to measure, but definitely higher rates of depression and anxiety. And a lot of people back off from the internet. Um, It affects people's work performance. If they're kids, it affects their school performance. And this is sort of surprising, but it's not to me, but I think to others it probably is, but um, more health complaints. When you're under the stress of being bullied, harassed, victimized, you get sick. And so people have a whole lot of health complaints. And it just comes out in every study. More psych problems, including maybe suicide less performance and more health problems. It's it's a real mess. It's, you know, it is it is an important thing to try and slow down. And but stop. would
1: there be some people who would be more easily affected by something like that than others?
0: Yeah, absolutely. But you could say that for anything. You so um, you, know, you could say that for um, trauma. You could say that you know if you have a uh, cuck, car- if you fall over and break your knee, you're going to be more effective if you've already broken your knee once before. Do you know what I mean? Um, every problem in the world, uh, we're more or less prone to it. Overall... You know, we're probably, you could probably say it all evens out in the long run. But, yeah, there will be some people who are in more prone. If you're already depressed or already stressed, it will just add to the burden of your stress and depression.
1: What actually constitutes online bullying, though, from a legal perspective, Cody? well there's a number of definitions and I think the problem that we have
2: almost from the starting point is that bullying itself um, has a lot of def- definitions um, we we use the word bullying to describe um, some of the unsocial behavior that happens in the schoolyard all the way up to you know the very uh, real and very harmful uh, things that can happen in workplaces that can lead to all of the really dire effects that Steve's been talking about. So, when we sort of talk about, well, you know, what is legally online bullying? It, it sort of depends on what context you're looking in. Uh, so, if you're looking at, you know, what is the sort of behaviour that you should be um, concerned about if it's happening with your children, such that you should be seeking some assistance, uh, the the Safety Commissioner has, you know, one definition and talks about things like, you know, it's it's abusive messages. It's hurtful messages. It's um, fake profiles and imitating people online. It's you know excluding others, humiliating others, um, nasty online gossip and chat. And I think that um, when you're talking about children, that is absolutely the sort of conduct uh, that you should be uh, very alert about, um, and that you should be sort of you know talking to the school, making a complaint to the eSafety Commissioner, and, and acting on it. Um, I think what then becomes difficult is that when you look at uh, the conduct that applies to adults, we sort of carry with us that, that idea of bullying um, being something that happens to children uh, and being something that adults should just be able to shrug off. Um, and I think that when we actually look at a lot of the stuff that's happening online, we use the label bullying, uh, but really a lot of it is probably more towards the end of the spectrum that is, you know, threats,
1: harassment, verbal
0: online.
1: Assault. Exactly.
0: There's so many words because, you know, trolling comes up all the time, um, internet trolls.
1: What do what people mean by trolling? Well,
0: again, it's, it's vague, but in essence, trolling is the process where you put up comments that are purposely designed to create fuss, anger, agitation, anxiety. So they're comments that are designed to provoke some sort of emotional response.
1: Because often too, they're not anything to do with the subject matter to what they are responding. No, they're usually
2: incredibly personal and and they're very much about the person and really trying to intimidate the person into not even expressing further opinions. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where it it becomes really harmful is that what we are seeing are are people who deliberately go out of their way to really just heap abuse on individuals. And and I think this is where it does become interesting looking at the gender aspect of it um, is that when you look at women who experience harassment online. Um, Yes, one in two have reported it, but when you look at those that are receiving the bulk of that harassment, they are women who are um, expressing opinions either just through their personal life or through their job. And this is where we again get back to Tara Moss. If she was just a model, you know, Snapchatting about what clothes she was wearing, she probably wouldn't experience this abuse. The reason she's experiencing abuse is because she's talking out on human rights issues and in particular her history um, in which, you know, she has been the victim a, a victim of rape.
1: How much... Okay, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Considering that it's an open forum, and the reality is not a most of us don't take it terribly seriously. What's put up there is not actually seen as you know. Unless <laughs> let's face it, what we you know we don't take anything that President Trump puts up there seriously. So why would we take anything else seriously? How much is it about finding that line between being resilient and? the line that then is crossed into something that is potentially deemed illegal. I mean, from a legal perspective, how much is it just people finding where that line is? Or is there already a line legislatively? I can't say that legislatively. Is there already a line that says if someone crosses the line and says that, then you have a case up until then, just, just be tough, get thick skinned. So I think that, uh, resilience certainly
2: comes into it. And I think when we sort of look at uh, the stages that we recommend to people who are experiencing online um, harassment, bullying, however you want to describe it, um, you know, we do start with the lower level stuff. We start with the ignore, block, report them to the social media company. I think people who are experiencing online abuse have gone way beyond the resilience part of the spectrum, um, are now into the position where to be able to just live a normal life, to be able to experience a day where they are not receiving just really vile, hurtful comments, they actually have to take themselves off the platform. Um, And I think that's been one of the problems in the past that people have sort of said, well, it's the internet, it's a bit of a playground, you know, it's optional, you don't need to be there, why don't you just get off the platform? Um, But of course, there's as as you would know, Lindy, you know, the internet these days is an integral part of how yeah. we do business. I mean, most people in, in our jobs certainly can't be off, say, Twitter, and yet if you are experiencing harassment on a daily basis because of the things you're putting out on Twitter, I think that's the point where, you know, you really need to be talking to law enforcement authorities.
1: Yes, and that is, and that will be acted upon? Uh, so I think that... So I guess um, with, the, with the
2: police, um, you, you bring any sort of... You know, complaint to the police. The first thing they're going to look at is, well, you know, what's the evidence saying? Do we actually think that an offence has been um, committed here? Uh, And I should say that's their job. I think sometimes people, before they go to the police on these online things, sort of think they need to, you know, be able to say, well, look, this is definitely assault or it's definitely, you know, stalking or something like this. And I think that my message is, look, don't, don't worry about that. That's what the police are good at. Just take. The conduct that you're concerned about to the police, and then and then they will investigate it. Okay, it. they will decide if there's um, enough there to prosecute. Um, having said that, though, we are sort of slowly evolving in our understanding of what bullying is. I mean, I know Steve that you say that the evidence about the effect on people mentally has been around for decades. I don't think we've had the same understanding of it as an offence. For as long, I think our understanding Mm. is evolving. So, you know, if people go to the police, they take their complaint and they're not satisfied with how it's handled, um, you know, I would encourage them to, to keep going, to sort of, you know, raise it, escalate it higher within
0: police. Can I say, too, there's an art to going to the police. You don't just front up at the busiest time on a Friday night and tell them this is outrageous. You know you have to think it through. You ring them up in advance. You make an appointment. You ask to see someone who's got experience in this area. You collect all your information. You take it along. You think about it carefully. You plan it. Just like anything, there's an art to making a complaint. If you're, you know, if you turn up angry at a busy time, you'll get a very different response than if you turn up calm with all your information presented at a time when they're prepared for you. Yeah,
1: as my father said to me once, you know, it's it, it's always Helpful. The police, lawyers, doctors. Mm. If you've done half their work for them, then they're going to love you, uh, no matter who that is. Steve, I want to bring in the idea of how difficult. If it's no, okay, if it's more difficult to be resilient in this space because it is a public airing of what somebody is saying about you, and the reason that I bring that up is that. As a radio announcer who has access to the all of the text messages that come in, they just the, 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 the gatekeeper doesn't screen any of those. They just flow through, come up each and every night. And fortunately, I've got to a point in my career – don't let this be a challenge to you people, by the way – but fortunately, I've got to a point in my career whereby uh, most people are – just communicating with the topics and the issues that we are covering. Uh, And and that's the way I like it. And that's beautiful. I I don't want people saying that's a great job. and I don't want people saying that's a terrible job and getting personal either. Both of those are just not important to this show or to any radio show. Um, so, but the thing is, in the initial days when I first moved down to Melbourne and was doing the drive show in Melbourne, um, there, would, there would just be sometimes a whole page of people just completely slagging off at me about every single aspect of the work that I was doing. And it got to the point where I, to find a text that was relevant to the conversation <laughs> was to become tricky. But that was between them and me, right? You see what I'm saying here? Mm. I, they were sending that to me. The only person who knew about that was them who'd, who'd sent it and me who was reading it. So, I mean, whilst it wasn't pleasant and whilst I did have to you know, get some significant counselling over many years in order to deal with that, uh, but that wasn't to me as bad as then all of you, everyone listening to this, having access to that same raft of complaints. Of, of Of personal complaints about my work and about me as a human being. So I think it would have it makes it worse if these comments go out into the public arena that then everybody can access and read, not just the ones to whom they are targeted. is that is that a real thought is I mean is that yes. comment?
0: I don't well, I think it's exactly the whole point because people don't um so much do this via email. you know if they wanted if they genuinely wanted to criticize you just, For you, they'd send you an email, but of course they don't. They put it in very public spaces and, and they hide behind anonymity and fake names. And of course, unfortunately, there are particular groups that get particularly targeted you've already highlighted the communist group which is women they get about five times more cyber abuse and trolling if they talk anything to do with feminism you can they can expect a flood if they um if uh it's you know, this you know it's one of the groups that gets targeted and again it's you know it's often by people who believe they're hiding behind anonymity and i think in the first five or ten years they were whereas now the police are up to date and people can tra- chase ip addresses and that times have changed technologically um So uh, you know, I think there is a. I think that's. I think we're turning. We're slowly turning the ship around on that particular issue.
1: But why does it make it worse for somebody if they know that those things that are being said about you can be read by others? Because
0: that's our whole public reputation. So if you come up to me and say something to me, you know, I'm going to take offence. But if you stand up in a a crowded auditorium and say Steve Allen's an an idiot for these reasons, and you and you. You know, it just feels so much worse. Everyone's looking at you, you know. You know everyone's thinking about it. It's it's terrible.
1: Yeah, and the other thing too, you have a chance to respond if it's one-on-one. You know, mm. have a chance to actually say yeah. something
2: back. But what's interesting also I think where we're at at the moment with social media is that in some ways we are turning the ship around and there are also examples where the fact that it is public has actually helped a person to build resilience and to sort of get through some of the torrent of of, um, of comments um, because what you have is some very prominent commentators who are actually pulling out some of this abuse and you know they're, they're retweeting it or they're reposting it on Facebook or, or whatever channel they're in um, to actually call out that this is the sort of behaviour that's that's happening and so that also has I think a, an effect on, on how people sort of understand some of those public comments and recognising that it's not the person receiving the comments who's the problem but it's actually the person making the comments. Yes,
1: actually I've got a text that says what do you think of this Katie? An on the spot fine the, which goes to the victim, so the money's there in goes to the victim I bet the culture would change pretty damn quickly anonymous threats a hundred times greater fine and half to the plat Platform for hunting them down. <laughs>
2: and what I love about that is that it does really deal uh, the platforms in and unfortunately the platforms have been a little bit slow to pick this up. So when we say platforms, we mean? We mean the social media companies. Yep. So the actual websites that are that are running these forums that allow people to make these comments. Um, traditionally, they have been very slow to pick up this behaviour um, as abuse, as threats. Um, and this, again, Steve, comes back to that whole idea. We know the effects of this conduct, but we have not always been so quick to recognise that um, it is threatening behaviour that we would not tolerate in the, in the physical world. Yes. Well,
0: you know, it all comes back to sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Now, that was fine when it was six kids in the schoolyard and even that, well, actually it wasn't fine. You know, we, now we know you've got, we have programs that stop bullying in school. But essentially, yeah, when it was six people in the workplace saying something and it was a spur of the moment and it didn't occur many times, whereas now when it's repeated, patterns in front of thousands, potentially, if not millions of people. The consequences are may bigger, but are way bigger, and uh, and it's nonsense. that sticks and stones. It's nonsense that words will never hurt you. It's it's
2: such a nonsense line. I and mean, I mean, look, I, I didn't go to primary school that long ago. I mean, like, I think even my generation grew up with that idea of sticks and t- stones but, don't break your bones. But I still think
1: there's an element that needs to that still needs to be there that, because especially for kids, you know, when you when you when you're trying out your. Powers, you're trying out your your ability to interact with somebody else when you're Mm. having a like just, but it needs to be narrowed down to what do we actually mean by bullying in a schoolyard, which is I think the consistency of it, the repetitiveness of it, and the personalised nature of it. I think it's also
2: about the intent. So I think that um, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names might never hurt me. I mean, I think that we know not only that words can. Harm. But I think we now know that w- words do harm. And I think that when you have people who engage in conduct with the, pu- with the purpose of causing someone harm, that's when it is absolutely yeah. in the realm of bullying, abuse, yeah, all those nasty things.
1: I want to quickly just go through some tips then. How bullies are best dealt with? And I think the pair of you have put this together. Yeah. So block, block them. Well,
2: well, the first is ignore. I mean, there are some people that you might be on social media and, you know, their opinion means so little to you that you you don't even take the action of blocking. You just ignore them. It's just part of the ephemeral, you know, stuff coming up. Um, If that doesn't work, it's then about blocking so that um, you don't see what they're posting. The problem is they can still post it. So if you become aware that it's still happening, for example, your friends are sending you stuff saying, you know, are you aware of this, Uh, then you should be reporting it to um, the social media platform um and if that and if if it still happens so as i said they can sometimes be a bit slow to act if that happens you know take screenshots of of what's being said um make a time to to see um, a police officer down at your local station, um, you know, and go in there prepared with you know the dates, times. Here's the screenshots, um, you know, and, and sort of ask them to have a look at it. Do half their work for them. And
0: a couple of other things. If you do feel you have to respond, you respond directly to them, not publicly. Don't respond on the social media platform. Direct message them or whatever the equivalent is. And if you do feel you're getting stressed, go and see someone. Go and speak to a GP. Go and you know get a referral to a, to someone or see a counsellor or whatever. Or seek help. Tell your family. Tell your friends.
1: And what do you? Say about if you're seeing that happening to a friend or a colleague of yours. Do do you defend them on that social media platform? Do you go directly to them to offer support? That's a good
0: good point. You don't want to be a bystander who does nothing. If you see one of your friends um, suffering from this sort of stuff, the first thing you do is reach out to your friend and give them some support and point out to them, "Hey, this has got nothing to do with you. The person with the problem here is the person." making the, um, you know, saying these outrageous things, not you. You know, you just happen to be the random victim they've picked this week, and then you give them support um, and you help, you know, support them through these processes because when you're the one under the microscope being picked on, it's not easy to think rationally. It's not easy to block, ignore, report, seek help, and so you help the person who's under stress think rationally and and get the support they need.
1: And finally, a question that's come through um, by text that says, surely everybody has a right to be heard. So why is this an issue?
2: And I think this is where, and and I think this is why social media companies have been very slow to act in the first place that, you know, they've traditionally sort of seen this as a free speech argument. And I think that like everything in our society, we have the right to do anything up until the point that it starts affecting somebody else. And so when we talk about a person's right to free speech, yes, they have the right to free speech, but when it starts affecting the rights of others, when it starts to affect people's feeling of safety on an online platform, I think that's when... You know, we need to start putting reasonable limits on your right to free speech.
1: This is Rits and Cures with Katie Miller and Steve Ellen. My name is Lindy Burns. And just if this conversation has brought things up for you, if you are in fact going through some difficult times on a social media platform at the moment, Lifeline is there, thirteen eleven fourteen and beyond blue, thirteen hundred double two four six three six. So lifeline thirteen eleven fourteen and beyond blue thirteen hundred double two. 4636. In a moment, our special guest tonight, Dr. Anthea Rhodes. Rhodes, get that right, Lindy. He's the director of the Australian Child Health Poll. What is it? What has it got to do with you? And how will it help you and me? We'll find out. This is Ritz and Cures on your Tuesday night with Melbourne lawyer Katie Miller and psychiatrist, Associate Professor Steve Ellen. And our special guest tonight is Dr. Anthea Rhodes. She's the director of the Australian Child Health Poll. It's a quarterly national survey of Australian households that looks to shed light on the major health issues facing Australian children and adolescents. It's really an innovative approach to health and the first of its kind in Australia. But as well as directing the health poll, she's a paediatrician and a medical educator working at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. She has clinical interests in the health needs of vulnerable children with expertise in immigration health and paediatric forensic medicine. Anthony, welcome to the program. Hi, Lindy. That is a fairly impressive quiver of, uh, of arrows and things like that. Uh, so well done. Thank you. How long have you
3: been in that in the job as the director of the poll? So about 18 months now. We started towards the end of 2015 and we've now run six polls, so one every quarter over that period of time. Why did we need the poll? Lots of reasons why we needed the poll. Look, it's really a unique way to understand what the public is thinking, doing, experiencing when it comes to child and adolescent health and taking that information and putting it at the heart of national discussion.
1: Whose idea was it to put it in place in the first place?
3: It evolved uh, at the Royal Children's Hospital in consultation with some paediatricians from Michigan in the US, where they run a national poll on child health there. And that that really was the seed, I guess, for the idea. Our poll's a little different, but it really comes from that um, beginnings in consultation with our partners overseas.
1: Why childhood medicine as the first Port of call, if you like, in terms I'm assuming this is going to expand in, in future years. There'll be there'll be adult health polls, et cetera. But why children to start with?
3: Well, just because paediatricians are particularly clever, Lindy, and we, we like to do things first. You're <laughs> just advanced. That's Much right, we're more advanced. advanced. Not. See, Steve's just sitting right there going, damn it, it's true.
0: You know what, though? You know what, I could put this in, you know, this has been something I've been interested in for a few decades. And I think I can add a little bit of context because yep. two of the areas I've worked in have been um, at the forefront of trying to listen to what, the, what they Call consumers or patients want, um, the first big one was HIV. So back in the um, late 80s, early 90s when HIV hit and it went started going down its sort of usual process of governments making policies and um, clinicians developing treatments and stuff. And um, interestingly, one of the big groups just by chance that was affected at the time was gay men. And of course, gay men by and large tend to be pretty well educated, pretty well informed and uh, have a strong political history. And so they immediately stood up and began this basic sense of, the, the catch cry at the time was nothing about us without us. And they insisted that they're involved at every level of health policy. What, um, everything through to the research. They wanted to um, have a say in how the research was done. And I remember at the time, it was just fascinating the way it changed attitudes. I remember a doctor walking into the um, cafeteria at the time and sitting down. And he said, I just ordered an MRI on a gay guy with HIV. And he said he couldn't do it at two o'clock when I told him it was being done. He said he had other stuff <laughs> and wanted it at a time to suit him. That's just outrageous. <laughs> <laughs> I'm helping him. Whereas now we, and our attitudes have changed entirely now, it's gone a complete 180 and we now understand that if we want people to follow our treatments, we have to um, work with them, not just tell them what to do like a paternalistic minister looking down and saying thou shalt have your MRI at 2pm. And, and this, I think, is a natural evolution.
3: Well, I think particularly in child health, I, I, I guess there's a few reasons perhaps why this came to the forefront ahead of maybe other areas in medicine. One is because we talk a lot about patient-centered family-focused care and the fact that really to understand how healthcare will work in a in a family with a child at the center of that family we really have no hope of achieving that in a meaningful way until we understand how that family works and what the family brings to that perspective because really they're the you know they're the part of the team when it comes to the healthcare that happens around that child so We really see this as, if you like, the ultimate in consumer focused care. And in many ways, healthcare has been late to the party, I think, on asking consumers what they want, why they want it, if it works. But definitely it's bringing that voice for us when it comes to child health.
1: How do you get a kind of definitive voice about a particular issue, though, when every family is different, surely?
3: Absolutely. So the way we seek to do that is we get a nationally representative sample. So we sample 2,000 households across Australia that is representative in terms of state and territory, age, gender, um, cultural background, so language other than English, being born overseas, with a range of ages of children as well in that sample, and really, we do a pretty good job of getting a picture, a snapshot of what's happening across Australia.
2: So one of the problems that they're having with political polling is that it's traditionally been done using landlines. Uh, and of course, um, the people who own landlines, landline phones these days tend to be- Not clustered representative. In, well, clustered in particular demographics, I was going to say. Um, so how are you getting around that when you're dealing with, with families of children?
3: Yeah, so the surveying is, is done online. But the recruitment onto the panel that from whom those 2,000 households are randomly selected every quarter is mixed methods. So some of that is with the old pick up the phone and dial, open the, the white pages if you like. Some of it is door knocking, some of it's random calling, some of it's online and that's all done by um, a company who are, have been appointed by tender to us. And then they have a panel of 200,000 Australians who participate in the research, and then we purposefully sample from those 200,000 to get 2,000 every quarter that looks like a good spread, that looks like Australia. Six polls, you said, that's been done on what sort of issues? We've covered a whole range of things. Um, The most recent poll was around vaccination, parent perspectives on vaccination. So lots of new information, some of it polarising, which we often find around that topic, other things we've looked at, what are the big health problems worrying parents, which didn't necessarily look the same as the big health problems worrying researchers. Such as what? What, what came out of the ones that
1: what your the parents list. want? You've got the uh-huh. list here. Oh,
3: look out. Steve's got the list so, here. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't need the list, Steve. I do know
0: it off the top of your head. So, so, I've put the list to test um, to test Katie and Lindy. <laughs> Have a guess. What would be number one or In, number two or number what, three? What
1: parents? what
0: parents? parents' worry about, yeah. Yeah, about children's health. What do they think are the big issues? Obesity? Yep, number two. Bullying? Bullying.
3: Bullying's in the top ten.
0: Yes, it is. It's uh, number five. I want to give you guys points according to what Yeah, You already get eight points for getting the second one. You get five points. No.
3: I get no points. How much money do we spend on bullying, though? You know, like, if you want to take this information and say, well, this is what's worrying parents every day in their household, Yeah. and then look at how it sits alongside some of the priorities when it comes to research and spending. So obesity was number one?
0: I'll give you the rest. I won't make you suffer. Excessive screen time was number one. Um, Number three was not enough physical activity. Number four was diet, poor diet. And then some of the biggies, illegal drug use, families. Family domestic violence, internet safety, child abuse and neglect, and suicide. They were the, that rounded out the ten.
2: Now, what I find fascinating about that is because I was, of course, sitting here going, "Oh, gee, what sort of you know health and medical issues would, would parents yes, be un- too. and concerned about?" And the things that kept going to my head in terms of what parents are concerned about are exactly those things. You know, the kids spend too long, you know, in front of the TV or on the game station or, or whatever. Um, I know I've just mixed two. That's fine. Two consoles there. Um, You know, but I was sort of thinking, well, they're not health issues, are they?
3: But are they? And who looks after those? You know, there's the big question. So say you've got a problem with that. You've got a problem with your teenager, doesn't come out of their room, socially withdrawn, gaining weight, eating poorly, not communicating, maybe trolling for all we know. And who's going to help you with that? Because is it really a health problem? They're well, the questions that that this is, I guess, bringing to the forefront. And
2: does this start to sort of open up this idea of you don't have to be sick for it to be a health problem, but health is about well-being and not just illness and disease?
3: Yeah, look, hopefully. Is
1: that normal to go to a doctor and say, I'm worried about my, I want to bring my 14 year old daughter in because of those three things you just mentioned, not enough exercise, poor eating habits and spending too much time in front of a, a computer screen. But they
0: do because this is their health problems. Yeah. And, of course, if we're not educating, you know, it, it, it goes in so many ways. If we're not educating the doctors and doing research and understanding them and looking at act- what the physical and mental effects are of these things, right. then we're not answering the question. So the patient might come in and say, I'm really worried about my kid. He's in front of the screen all the time. And the doctor will be looking blankly saying well, his uh, He's, blood pressure's okay or whatever yeah, it is that right. they do. And so that we're not meeting their needs. We're wasting money. We're wasting time. We're not meeting their needs. So this is about it's understanding whole, it. But
1: it's a whole new way of approaching medicine, by the sounds of things, of, of looking at it, dare I say, from a proactive way rather than a reactive
3: way. And listening way. to those
0: pesky patients. And not... <laughs> And not just how, not
3: looking at it purely from a physiological perspective. Well, I think what was really interesting to us about the top ten, if you like, is is what was notably absent. So on the list of things that we built. Through consultation with patients and families and existing literature about what was important, potentially, we had 30 items and we've just heard the top 10. But things that didn't rank in the top 10 included allergies, childhood cancers, ADHD, autism spectrum disorder, infectious diseases, you know, things that we typically think of as common and important and not to say they're not but what we learnt from the poll is they're not the most worrying things for Australian parents today. Yeah, or a smaller group of people are worried about those things. Correct. So that was one poll. What are some of the others you said? So we looked at um, where parents are getting their health information. Mm -hmm. So, again, uh, we learnt that they're going online mostly, which is, you know, there's some literature already around that. What was interesting to us was that whilst two-thirds of people told us that they were using online sources before they saw a doctor usually – only less than 10% said they trusted that a lot. So yet when we asked people about whether they'd talked about what they'd seen online with doctors, only one in four people said yes. So a lot of the time they're getting all this information and then in they go to the doctor, it's like a secret test for the doctor. (laughs) You know, I'll give them a few ideas and then I'll see whether they say what the internet said said, or something else. So that sort of information, you know, is really important for healthcare providers to know. People come to you, they have an idea. Don't sort of edge around that. Say, look, you know, most patients, they've already been online before they What do you think it is? What do you think it is? (laughs) Show me what you've got there. Which was the site? Let's have a look at it. And help them because that's normal and we're going to do that more and more. But we need to work out how we can have a space in the consult to make that productive. Yeah.
1: What was number three? What were some of
3: the others? So we, we, in the lead up to the last federal election, we asked some political questions around who parents felt best represented the interests of children. Interestingly, we had the party leaders of all the major parties and then we had a, an option which was none and the vast majority selected none, well, around 50%. The, the most, you know, leading choice was no one seems to listen to children's concerns. Um, and a few other questions around potential policies and whether or not people would be in support of those to tackle things like sugar and sugar tax, for Mm -hmm. example. Um, So really, because we're in the field quite frequently and we can do something responsive. Once the election was called, we went, you know what, let's look at that. And we were able to provide some information. It's nice
1: to be able to react to something that's, that's pertinent at the, at the time.
3: Yeah. Steve, you looked excited to say something there.
0: Well, I think one of the things that this information can give us, and some of these polls help us along these lines too, is there's a big gap between what doctors believe and what patients believe. Mm. And as a consequence, there's an enormous amount of money wasted where doctors recommend things, maybe write scripts, maybe give antibiotics, maybe do this, that, and the other thing, that um patients have no interest in or if the doctor tells them a particular thing like the doctor might say you've got a virus antibiotics don't work on viruses no point they'll just go to the next doctor and get it and so it helps us understand where we're wasting our money and how we can better design our treatments so that they actually um get used and get done
1: i've just okay there's been three texts along this line that have come through in the last five minutes, which have raised a really interesting point, which is, I'm, I'm going to read a couple of them out. One says, Haley, these are not health problems, they're parent problems. And another one that says, please, you're talking about a parenting role, not a doctor problem. Can't we just let them look after, you know, sick people and parents can take some responsibility for the raising of their children?
3: I think very, very good point, absolutely. But what's really important to know is that one feeds into the other so if you start with a parenting problem and it might be that absolutely and someone's under supported or perhaps got the wrong advice or not managing that well what you end up with and sometimes quite quickly is in fact a health problem so the child who is many hours in front of the screen, not eating well, you know, the parent who's struggling to manage that for whatever reasons becomes the obese child who has cardiac problems, joint problems, liver problems, and they become the adult that is draining, you know, our resources. So parenting is absolutely at the core. Whether or not helping parents is the role of doctors is a really interesting and important question. But certainly support and education for parents, particularly when you're looking after children as a doctor, is part of that role.
1: Well, It seems to me that it would be about offering parents some tools in yeah. order to try and you know, offer up other other things for someone to do in case they were just spending all their time on the screen um so much of it is people just are at their wits' end yep. they 're not getting enough sleep they, they, they just they, they haven 't got the education haven 't got the training so but I see this as a whole new field that doctors are well, going to have to
0: explore uh, is see it but for example, you might you know just for example, you might say their number one health concern is worrying about their kids spending too much screen time mm-hmm. well, the research might show that. That doesn't that actually cause many right. problems yep. and you don't have to worry so much and maybe focus on something, something else, else like, um, I don't know, whether they're vaccinated. or oh, I don't <laughs> want to raise No, excellent but... point
3: though, Steve. That's yeah. right. And just because, and I think it's really important, just because parents are worried about it doesn't, doesn't make it a problem. Yes, it's yes. a problem for them. So maybe the issue is in the education. It's in you know the, the gap basically that sits between that person's experience and, and what we know healthcare-wise.
2: So how's this going to work? I mean, you were talking about, you know, having the top 10 might you know, top 10 sort of concerns of parents might help to direct research funding. Um, but is that the best sort of way of deciding research funding? Like, shouldn't we be focusing research funding on, you know, the things that, I don't know, cause the most harm or have the most effect across society? I mean, I guess it's it's that sort of age old question of, you know, do I as an uned, you know, uneducated when it comes to medical stuff, am I really in the best position to be saying what you, the expert, should be researching about?
3: I think it's really important to say this is by no means the only voice when it comes to deciding what's important to focus on but what it is is a a voice we haven't heard much before so i think you know where research funding comes from how those priorities get decided and you know drawn up is complex and absolutely requires multiple of different perspectives and aspects but one of those certainly we think, should be the parent experience, the public voice, mm-hmm. which previously just hasn't been at the table in the way that we're hoping to bring it.
0: And you know what? I see, I, you know, I don't want to drag it into politics, but, you know, one of the things we've, know, we've been debating for the last six months all over the world is the difference between evidence and belief that mm-hmm. has obviously been manifest very largely, and to a great degree, in American politics most recently. And everyone's trying to understand why is there this massive gap between what the people believe and what the evidence shows? Not always, but in certain places. And these polls, in my mind, are trying to understand that gap in um, healthcare. Yeah. That's all. And uh, and per- certainly as a clinician, the gap's big. People come in with all sorts of beliefs. And if we don't understand them and we don't ask them and we don't listen to them, then we can't – They'll. we have to – explain our treatments in a way that they understand. We can't bridge that gap unless we understand their views. They won't understand our views if we don't understand theirs.
1: And by the sounds of it, you're saying that that those views have to be taken seriously because there's a sort of a tendency, isn't it, that's going... No, 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 that's not that's not right. This is right. This is what I'm telling you. These are the facts, now just go away and abide by them. Yeah, that's never worked. That's has it? never that's worked. That's right. it's not gonna
3: work. That that part of this is about bringing some evidence to the reality that, you know what, maybe that's just not gonna work. And and we did see that and dare I sort of tread into the vaccination space. But certainly we did see that that despite a huge amount of public education and from a doctor's point of view, a lot of evidence clear evidence around what's safe and what works in vaccination you know we're talking six weeks ago we poll a nationally representative sample of Australians and many parents still hold some of those myths and misconceptions.
0: I had one more question I wanted to ask you how do you figure out what questions you're going to ask? Like, do, can, can, we suggest, can I suggest questions?
3: <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, do you know what? We ask, we ask the public. So, no, we have a combination of ways. So uh, we have a research team and we take into consideration those things. We, can't, we have to focus on, you know, what the experts think might be useful as well. But then we, we have an open question on every poll where we seek input from the poll, people completing it. And then we're very open also for people to send something in. So we have a website the childhealthpoll.org.au and there's a, um, an email address there you can subscribe as well any any member of the public can subscribe and they will get there quarterly so not you know a huge amount of spam but every, four times a year they'll get the results of the poll sent to them but yeah there's avenues there for you to pop an idea on put it out there and we'll absolutely take it to the table to consider it.
2: So it sounds like you've totally converted Steve to the idea of the child health poll. Um, is the rest of the medical community as on board at having you know the the sort of the the patient's view at the table?
3: Look, I think it's challenging. It's always challenging when there's something new, and it's it's also challenging when that perspective might not immediately sit in the same space as your own. And healthcare providers. Are classically fairly traditional around perspective and sometimes people go oh well that's just what the parents think like it doesn't make it right maybe it's right maybe it's not but it's important and that's really the journey that we're on with the health poll and people are being converted but I, I won't pretend for a minute that everyone's been on board from the beginning what's the next poll I'll, you'll just have to it's have me back secret. and I'll tell you all about it, Lindy. <laughs>
1: it's a secret. I love that. A couple of uh, texts to wrap things up. Hello, I've been a GP for 36 years. and This has been 60% of my work for all of this time. And another, please do not underestimate the difficulties and stress that new technology places upon parents. The most common discussion amongst my friends is exasperation about screen time and the problems that it brings. Thank you very much, Viv. Thank you to all three of you for being part of Ritz and Cures tonight. To you, Anthea, thank you. Thank you. you. Come My in pleasure. and t- t- uh, talk about the next poll, please. By the way, the website is childhealthpoll.org.au. Anthea is the Director of the Australian Child Health Poll. To you, Steve Allen, and you, Katie Miller, we'll see you next week.
2: Cheers.